All right, last week I did um, an overview of chapter 2 of Hebrews, trying to point to the things in both chapter 1 and chapter 2 that really make evident, I think, what's so great about this uh, message that's been proclaimed by God through Jesus. Why it's so important that we not neglect such a great salvation. This morning I want to circle back to specifically to verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Again, we may do this from time to time as we go through Hebrews. There are large sections of thought that I want to try and capture and then go back and boil down some of the smaller ideas. So we'll do that this morning as we come to the first four verses of chapter 2 of the letter to the Hebrews. Let me read it for us. As always, this is the very word of the living God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. May it bear fruit in our lives as we come before it this morning. Let me pray for us as we come before the word. (coughs) O Lord our God and Father, we do again come before you and now ask your blessing upon this part of the service where we come before your word. We ask that you would speak to us, and that you would fulfill the promise that you yourself made, that when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty. Instead, it accomplishes everything that you purpose for it, and is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, we ask again that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, so that our eyes might be open and our ears might be open to see and to hear the things that you would have us learn from your word this morning. In doing so, may it become a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches. Father, as always, we ask this in the precious, wonderful, matchless name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Earlier this week, I had a a last-minute, unexpected business trip up to Portland and um, was flying home Wednesday afternoon. I managed to get a window seat, which I always like to get if I can. And we were coming close to Orange County, flying south. And there's a part of the coast that turns left, east, uh, and then bends around towards Los Angeles and Long Beach and Orange County and so forth. And I, something caught my eye as we were flying along. And, and there was, it looked like a plane at first flying very slowly, gliding very peacefully along that eastward bending coast. turned out it was a bird, probably a a pelican or something, because it flapped later, (laughs) unless there's a new kind of plane I don't know about. But um, here's what was striking about it to me, and what was kind of fascinating about it. The direction the bird was going in was fairly straight along the coast, but its body was angled. It was flying at an angle. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. 
Why would it do that? Well, I went to engineering school. I know the answer. <laughs> the wind was blowing south. And so to go straight, the bird had to fly at an angle. Because if it flies this way, the wind's going to push it and it's going to get blown off course. So it sails at a little bit of an angle. Boats do this. Airplanes do this. It's a common phenomenon. And what struck me as I was watching it is how appropriate is that for the passage we have before us this morning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What's true of a bird in the air is also true of a boat in the water, and that's the term that's being used here. It's a nautical term. It's a boating term. We must pay close attention lest we drift away like a boat pushed along by, um, by the current, by wind, by swells, by the waves. And you know, if, if you've been on a ship, and some of you here have, um, that to steer a ship correctly, the The pilot has to pay attention to the currents. Which way are the currents flowing compared to where I want to go? There might be a huge ocean swell that's coming in from literally thousands of miles offshore. And that might push me or direct me in a certain direction. There might be a storm, and the storm tosses up waves that will push me one direction or another. And I have to pay attention to that. Wind also can affect the course. And so the pilot... Those steering the ship, either at the tiller or the wheel, if the old saying goes, they have to keep a weather eye out for what's going on and make sure they continue going in the right direction. Play co- play, pay close attention or you will go off course. You will drift off course. That's the warning of the passage this morning. Pay attention to what you've heard or like that pilot who's not paying attention to the water and the wind and the waves you also will drift off course. There's a command here. Pay attention with a warning. If you don't pay attention, you'll drift off course, followed by reasons to support the command and the warning given. What the writer is saying, it's necessary. It's necessary, and the implication is, now more than ever before, it is necessary to pay attention. Attend to this. Give heed to it, to the things that you have heard. If you don't, you'll drift off course, and the consequences are severe. The consequences are terrible. What I want to do this morning is look at these four verses. First, examine what's being taught here, but then spend some time to think through just some of the ways that we as believers, we as Christians, can drift off course. What are the winds? What are the waves? What are the currents that would cause us to drift off course from where we want to go from reaching our intended destination? So just a a look at the book, uh, look at the passage itself real quick, and then thinking about the things that can cause us to drift off course. All right, well, the first thing to know about verses 1 to 4 in chapter 2 is that this is the first of several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. One of the key themes, and they emerge here in these first couple chapters, Jesus has the better speaker, the better message of salvation that he brings, 
But then the warning. The author seems to be gravely concerned that those he's writing to are starting to drift away because they're not paying attention. And so there's repeated warnings throughout this book, and this is the first one. He's concerned that their faith may be in danger, even to the point that they may walk away from it. And that might seem surprising, sitting here in a Presbyterian church where we talk about predestination and election. But we have to affirm a couple things. One is that we know with with a certainty, and we can take confidence in Jesus' words in John 10, that if we are God's, no one can snatch us out of his hand. That is true, and that should give us great comfort. But there's a real danger of falling away. And it's for those who think they are believers, for those who think they are part of the household of God, who assume they are saved for whatever reason, but whose life and whose actions and whose behaviors don't show the fruit of that salvation. And that's part of what Jesus' parable is getting at. It's applied to the Pharisees and the leaders, but we can make application to us. If we don't bear fruit, what's the warning that, that even the people answer when Jesus asks? He's going to take them out and kill them if they don't show fruit. That's pretty serious. And so their warning comes. The danger here is pictured as a ship that's drifting off course, drifting off to sea. A very powerful, I think, and vivid picture. Explored a little bit here this morning. The, the call, the command, is, is just to pay, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It flows directly from chapter 1, where, which begins long ago, at many times, <clears throat> and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his very own Son. And chapter 1 goes on to argue that God has spoken now uniquely and specially through his very own Son, Jesus Christ. And it's a new message, and it's a better message. The message, of course, is the gospel. Repent of your sins. Seek God's forgiveness. Accept and believe in Jesus and his work to save you. His life of perfect obedience, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he waits to come again and permanently establish his kingdom. A time when he will judge all of us, separate the sheep from the goats, the sheep going on to eternal life with him, the goats experiencing the eternal wrath and punishment of God in hell. That message, both in its simplicity and all the ramifications of, of what it means for how we're to live, is the better message that we are to pay much closer attention to. What that means, we can tell this already from that command, is you can't be a casual Christian. I said elsewhere, you, you can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. Well, you can't be a casual Christian either. Too many think they can just walk the aisle, say the prayer, get their golden ticket into heaven, and then go on living their lives the way they, the way they want to. Can't do that. It means we can't ignore God's word. We have to be students of it. It means we can't ignore God's worship. We must be actively present and participating in the worship of God. 
means we can't ignore fellowship with God's people because this is our new family and this is the body of Christ, our Savior himself. It means we can't ignore the gifts that God has given us to serve him. It means we have to take time to discover what they are, learn them, put them into practice to serve God and his people and to serve our neighbors as well. It means we can't just go on living the life we used to live before we became a believer. Because we're now a different kind of person. We think and we act differently. The Gospels and the, the Epistles talk about walking in the light instead of walking in darkness. It's a different kind of life. It means we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength with every devotion that we have in our being. And it means we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And that love should be evident to those around us. People should be able to say, yes, that Christian loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, that Christian is someone who loves her neighbor. It should be reflected in how we live and how we talk and how we behave with those around us. Because if you're paying close attention to God's word to you from Jesus you will be a different person. Change may be slow, it may be fast, but it will be there. We will struggle with sin. We'll have the same struggle Paul had that I prayed about. Why do I do the things I know I shouldn't do? Why do I not do the things I know I should? Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Christ our Savior. Change may be slow or fast, but it will be there. Again, I've said this before. If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you can look back on your own life and say, I'm not who I was. I'm different. God has worked in me, and it's a wonderful thing to see. And you can look forward with confidence that you will not be the person you are today if you continue to walk with the Lord. He works in us. He changes us. It's hard sometimes, it's painful sometimes, but it's a good thing, and it's for his glory. If you're not paying close attention to the message given to you, those things aren't going to happen. But if you're not paying attention, it doesn't mean that nothing happens, because there's no middle ground. You're either growing or you're regressing. You're either making progress or you're moving backwards. You're either on course, to use the language of the writer here, or you're drifting off course. Every temptation, every urge not to study God's word, not to worship, not to serve, are like those currents and winds and waves that want to push us off course, take us off our destination question that I want to revisit later. Are you on course or are you off course? As you look at your life today, are you on course or are you off course? Now think about that for a ship. Being on course or off course matters. You either reach your destination or you don't. A captain or a pilot who can't steer his ship into the right port is not doing his job. And it doesn't have to be much. A ship leaving Japan on the far side of the huge Pacific Ocean, if it's off just a little bit, 
it makes the difference between maybe end up ending up in San Francisco instead of L.A. That's not a good thing. Think of the rescue operations that we do for countries that experience disasters, tsunamis or earthquakes or those kinds of things. You've, you're, you're steering a ship with relief supplies to those in need, and you, you steer just a little bit off. And instead of ending up in Thailand, you end up in Australia. You haven't done a good job. Those people need you. You don't think there's going to be consequences for that? Of course there will. That's similar to the idea here in verses 1 to 4. Pay attention so you don't drift away. And if you do drift away, there are consequences. And those consequences are dire. The message that Jesus brings is a better message than that that was spoken through prophets and angels in the past. The gospel message of the new covenant is a better message than that of the old covenant. But, the writer is saying, that old covenant was reliable. It was a valid, he's using legal language here, it was a valid legal testimony. It proved to be reliable. And as a result, any transgression, every disobedience received just retribution. It received the justice it was deserved. And now what the author is saying, if that was true about that lesser message, now that we have a greater message, can we escape if we disregard it? Well, no. The consequences are severe. And the, the, the witness is a better witness. Look at who's witnessing here. The Lord himself, in verse 3, he brings the message himself. He speaks publicly the word made flesh. God himself, the Father, bears witness by signs and wonders, miracles and spiritual gifts that accompany the testimony of the apostles, those who heard the message from Christ, validate that message. And those gifts come from the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God that we sang about this morning, bears witness to this better message. And if that weren't enough, the apostles who walked and talked and heard from the Lord himself bring the same message. (laughs) Can we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation? Verse 3. Well, that's a rhetorical question. No. If the workers in the vineyard can't escape for what they did to the Son, surely we will not escape for ignoring the message that came from the Son. There's no better message with no better witness. So ignore it at your own peril. The consequences are enormous, and you will not escape them. The frustrations of sin in this life, but forever eternal, life, uh, eternal death and eternal exile. Think about the, the, the people of the Old Covenant. Yes, they had to make sacrifices every time they sinned. But there was death for some sins, and even worse, from the point of view of the people of Israel, was exile. Kicked out of the land by God himself. You refuse the message of the Son, you get death, and you get exile from his eternal kingdom. That's a worse punishment. A worse punishment by far. 
That's the message of the, the writer here. Pay close attention so you don't drift away and suffer the consequences of, of doing so. Well, if all that's true, what I thought might be helpful would be to think about some of the, some of the things that would cause us to drift away today. What are some of the dangers out there that we should be paying attention to as we try to pilot and steer our own lives properly and correctly? What are some of the things that would cause us to drift off course? What kind of strong currents are, are out there? What kind of strong winds would blow our ship off course? What kind of waves would rise up to thwart our attempts to steer in the right direction? Now, there's, there's another danger. There are enemies who oppose us um, publicly. For ships, for navies, there's pirates, or there's an opposing navy that would attack our ship. But that kind of opposition is not what's in view here. The opposition is the kind that comes and influences us to drift off course. It's not an open attack. It's something that comes and influences us to go in the wrong direction. More subtle, but just as dangerous. If we're not paying attention to what we should pay attention to, we're going to go off course. And there's no one to blame but ourselves. That's our own fault. That's why the appeal is so strong. Pay close attention. If you don't, you've got no one to blame but yourself. So what to watch out for? I'm going to borrow from uh, the study of a couple sociologists who wrote a paper about religion in the U.S., mostly about young people, but I think it applies to religion and, and Christianity in general in the United States of America. What these soci- sociologists found is something they called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a big term. I'll explain it as we go. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. And what it is, is it's a religion opposed to Christianity and to the God of the Bible. But it dresses itself up in clothes that look very, very similar. In reality, it has more to do with New Age thinking or modern forms of Gnosticism than the truths of God's word in the Bible, that message delivered from Jesus. But deism and moralism and the therapy that people seek, those are the currents, those are the waves, those are the winds that are pressing against our ship of faith, trying to get us to move off course. And all too often, we're not paying attention the way we should. I want to look at each, and I'll begin at the end with deism, because every problem in theology always begins with incorrect thoughts about God and who he is. Moralistic therapeutic deism, it's a kind of deism. Deism is just the belief that there's a God out there who exists. And this isn't classic deism, if you know what that is, uh, but it shares some traits that are similar. It it shares the idea that God is is far off. He's not very involved with the affairs of our lives or of the world or of mankind in general. And God himself is not very well defined. He's a little bit nebulous. We, we don't really know much about him. And, and so when you hear someone, and it seems like it's always a celebrity of some kind, when you hear someone describe himself or herself as spiritual and that they believe in some kind of higher power, that's deism in the modern contemporary form. I'm a spiritual person. I believe in some sort of higher power. 
that sounds good. But they don't really know what that higher power is. It's undefined, it's unknowable, it's unreachable. Don't know what that higher power does. Don't know what that higher power wants. And how that higher power wants us to be good and kind or not. But at best, that's all they can grab at. Is somehow, in some way, this higher power that's out there, well, he just wants the best for us. He wants us to be good and kind and be nice to one another. That's the God of this false deistic religion. And that's not the God of the Bible. Not at all. But if you don't pay attention, this is the false God that you will start to believe in because it's the predominant God in our culture. Don't fool yourself. The God of the Bible is not the God of the United States of America. But if you don't read and study God's Word, if you don't try to understand who God is and how He has revealed Himself to us, what He wants and how, how He is really close to us, to those who seek him. If you don't read and study that he loves his people and protects them and cares for them, if you don't know and study this, you'll begin to slowly drift, carried along by the current of this popular God of culture. And you'll begin to think of God as some kind of nice grandfatherly guy in the sky. And he thinks nice grandfatherly thoughts about you. If you don't pay close attention, as the writer calls us to, you'll forget that God is holy and righteous and that sin is a rebellion against him and that as a just judge, he has to punish that sin. You'll also forget that he offered the solution. The one who's offended, the one who's rebelled against, is the one who creates the solution by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to make salvation for those who believe in him. If you don't pay attention, you'll get the wrong God. And you'll miss out on salvation. So pay attention. Don't drift away. Well, if the God of our culture is kind of a kindly old grandfather in the sky who wants us to do good things and wants to do good things for us, then it kind of follows. If he wants to do good things for us, then that's what we should want for ourselves, good things. This is what Smith and Denton call therapy, or therapeutic deism. And this modern therapy, whatever it's deistic or or humanistic, as much as anything, is designed to help us. It's It's meant to do good things, to make us feel good about ourselves and the things that happen in our lives. Bad things happen. Well, they're not your fault. It's someone else's fault. Or it's just the result of circumstances that you can't control. It's okay. And we're given coping mechanisms. And we're given words to say to ourselves and things to do. And the basic message of it all is that old Bobby McFerrin song. Don't worry. Be happy. That's what Grandfather in the Sky wants. It's okay. Don't worry. Be happy. Have a positive outlook on life. Think good thoughts especially of yourself. We've got to have good self-esteem. Be all that you can be. Because that's what your grandfather in the sky wants. Bad things happen, or people do bad things. 
not because they're bad. They're just broken. They're broken by bad parents or teachers or experience or habits. And, you know, what's broken can be fixed. If we're just willing to give it a go, give it a good try, find and apply the right tools. That's what modern therapy is all about. There's an old Keith Green line from one of his songs. Hey, man, you ain't no sinner. You're just broken. Let me fix you. Let me fix you up with a little grandfatherly good juice. And this is modern life that's preached to you by virtually every TV show you watch, movie that you go to, book you read, magazine article, news show, documentary, every, almost everything that you see in the culture around you today is preaching this message to you. And it goes back years. I don't want to be a mermaid. I want to have human legs and walk on land. Because that's what I want. Selfish. It's seeped into all sorts of areas of our culture. But this is not life as portrayed by valid witnesses in the Bible. What does the Bible tell us? We're not broken, we're sinners. We're rebels against God. Evil is a human invention, not just something that happens because of brokenness. We chase after it because we like it. That apple tastes good. It's good for food and desirable for eating. We are responsible for our own sins. We're responsible for our own actions. This sin is an inherent part of who we are, passed on ever since Adam and Eve. There's no fix for sin, not that we can come up with. And so we have to turn to the solution that God offers in Jesus himself, the message declared by the Son. That's better than the message from prophets and angels. No way to deal with sin, no way to correct sin, except God's offer to remove it from you, to cleanse you from it, to give you a new heart, to give you a new mind, to give you his very own spirit to equip you and enable you to walk in the way that he calls you to walk, turning away from sin. Therapy is not the answer. Admitting that we're sinners is the answer. And looking to God's solution. So that's the therapy and the deism part of it. The third aspect of it is this moralism. The other current, the other wind or wave that can cause us to drift away and that pounds at us in our modern age. And it logically flows from the other ideas. If the God of this world is just some higher being who wants good things for us, and if we're just broken people who can fix ourselves, then it follows that there must be some standard, some something that we can figure out if we just apply our reason, if we just apply our thoughts, if we just work hard enough, we can figure out what's right and good for everybody. We can figure out who is fixed and who's broken and who needs fixing. That's what morals are today. Figure out who is fixed, figure out who is not. And you might say to me, but pastor, morals today are all over the place. And I would say, of course they are. For those of you who were here a couple years ago, when we went through the Francis Schaeffer series, how should we then live? What did he tell us? 
When absolute truth is abandoned, things disintegrate. Philosophy, politics, economics, art, literature, you name it. Music. What do we see? Disintegration. And what, then what happens to society? Majority rules. Majority rules. If the majority of society decides that, now let me pick something innocuous. Eating carrots is bad, and you're a carrot eater, society has to fix you. Because <laughs> that's a bad thing. And you might go, it's just a carrot. It's good for my eyes. And they'll say, it doesn't matter. We've all decided eating carrots is bad, and you need to be fixed. That's the society that we're approaching. Look around you at the stories that you see in the news today and tell me that that's not true. Morals decided by majority vote. And the inevitable result is that we reject God and his true, reliable, and excellent word that has his ethic and his morality in it. If you agree with that morality instead of the one of society, something must be wrong with you. You've got to be fixed. Society is going to tell you how to talk, how to think, what you can and can't do, and it's based on ever-shifting standards for what the majority thinks is right and wrong. Don't believe me? Look at opinion polls and how radically they change on, on major issues. Think about yourself and the way you speak to people. Oh, I can't use that term. I can't use that title. I can't say or do this. We call, what do we call it? Politically correct speech. And it changes. What used to be politically correct is now politically incorrect and vice versa. It's hopeless. And yet this is the religion of the world around us in the United States of America. It's not the morality of the Bible. If you don't pay close attention to what Scripture teaches, you will drift away. And it is happening What's the warning in Revelation? Even Christians might be deceived. Even believers might be deceived. How many Christian churches accept the majority opinion out there about life, about politically correct speech and action and thought, and try to justify it using Scripture that's taken out of context? Following after the culture's pointless God and its ever-shifting morality. Listen to the language used by many churches and pastors. Look at the goals that they pursue. They talk about being broken instead of being sinners. That's a problem. They pursue prosperity. They pursue status. They pursue influence over others. Instead of the humble service, we just not that long ago went through Philippians, and the theme of that book is humble service to one another. What is the church doing? Pursuing wealth. Influence, power, status, prestige, political power, whatever. Just look, you'll see it. The morality of the Bible is rooted in the two great commands. Love God, love your neighbor. Those two commands expounded in the ten. And the ten explained and illustrated in the, in the many, many teachings, the, the, the commands, the the. The, the teachings of God through his prophets and through Christ. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the apostles in their letters. I've said before, if you want to know how to behave as a Christian, read 1 Corinthians 13 
and Romans 12. You can't get much better instruction than those two chapters. And then if you want to go deeper, add the latter half of Galatians and the latter half of Ephesians. Add the whole book of Philippians about humble service. Read Jesus' words. That's paying close attention. But when we don't, we drift away. So let me ask the question again that I asked before. Are you on course? Are you off course? Are you headed towards a destination that is sure and certain with Christ, with God for all of eternity? Or do you drift? Are you carried off course by the currents and winds and waves of the world around you? There's a scene at the end of the second night at the museum movie where Amelia Earhart takes off in the plane and they think she's going off in the, in the wrong direction. The plane turns and what does the one character say? Ah, she course corrected. You can course correct. God allows course corrections and makes those course corrections possible for those who seek him who are willing to diligently pay close attention to his word, heed the message from his son, and follow him. If you're drifting, now's the time. Now's the time to pay close, closer, much closer attention than you ever have before to God and to the message that he sent through his very own son. Jesus Christ. And it boils down to this. Seek forgiveness. Repent and believe and follow Jesus. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God and Father in heaven, we do thank you for the grace and mercy that you've shown to us in Christ our Savior. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that we know the kind of God that you are. An awesome God. Tremendous God. We know that fear of you is the beginning of wisdom. That we don't merely cower in fear, but we do have the great privilege that we have talked about in recent weeks of being called children of the Most High God, of of calling Jesus our friend and our brother. Intimate terms of, of love and affection that are ours by your grace and through faith in him. Help us. We cannot do it in our own strength. Help us to pay close attention to the message that we've received, given to us by Jesus Christ, the Word himself. Help us to understand it. Help us understand how to apply it in our lives and live according to it. Forgive our weaknesses. Forgive our failures. Forgive our sins. Strengthen us and equip us to be your servants. We ask it all in the precious and wonderful name of Christ, who is our Lord, who is our Savior, who is our brother, who is our friend, who is our King and who is our Lord. Amen.